people of Earth, it's time to enter the Spoilerverse via our secret portal at the exclusive Arctic Club in beautiful downtown Seattle with our hosts, John and Kenrick and Casey. Welcome to Spoiler Country. Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on Spoilerverse.com. If you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcaster, find Spoiler Country, and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us, leave us a voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at spoilercountry at gmail.com. Citizens of the Republic of Spoilerverse, welcome back to Spoiler Country. I'm Kinnigan, and that's Mr. Horsley. And today... On the show, well, it's Greg Rucka. Yeah. So, Johnny, I don't, I don't have a lot of information on Mister Rucka. Oh, really? He somehow has gone slipped past me in a lot of ways. I feel like a shitty goalkeeper right now. <laughs> so, why don't you tell the audience and myself who we're going to listen to right now? Well, his name's Greg. Last name's Rucka. Um, he writes comics. He wears glasses. Um, oh my God! Can you give me a more a a professional overview, please? Mister Rucka is an Eisner Award winner for best limited series with Whiteout and Melt. He's an Eisner Award winner for best new series with Queen and Country with Steve Rolston. Oh my God! He actually has won th- three Eisners, a Harvey, a Glad Award. Oh, actually, four Eisners. Holy shit! Yeah, and he's been nominated a bunch of times too. Yeah, he won an Eisner in, in 2002, 2004, and 2011. A Harvey in 2004 and a Glad Award uh, for Detective Comic Books in 2010. He's an amazing writer. He wrote he wrote No Man's Land for DC Comics for Batman. He did a bunch of stuff with uh, with Wonder Woman. He's actually he wrote one of the best Wonder Woman runs in the early 2000s that have been out in a long time that people love it. He wrote um, Wonder Woman. Uh, was it uh, the the High Kiedia? Mm-hmm. I, I can't pronounce that word, but it has that classic cover with the Wonder Woman boot on Batman's face, holding him to the ground. Oh yeah, yeah. He wrote that book and. He uh, he's comes on and he he talks with Casey and they had a they had a really good time. They talked for a long time too. Nice. So. Well, shoot, man, let's just sit back and listen to this. I'm excited now. Yeah, I'm super. Ex- I'm not even kidding. I'm super excited to listen to Greg <laughs> Rucker and Casey. So let's listen to Greg in his own words. So how, how you been, man? It's it's crazy right now. Yes, it is. We're, we're we're holding on here. We're, we're, I hear you. We, we've had we've had good days and bad days, but you know, we are living in the midst of an epic shit show, and yes. the people we have chartered upon to represent and protect us have absolutely failed to do so. And oh, yeah. nobody seems to be upset about the fact that a quarter of a million people are going to die from this thing, yeah. if not more. And that, to me, is probably the greatest crime of all here, that our standards have so fallen. We have descended so far uh, in our lack of empathy for one another and the divisiveness, you know, that we all, all live in, that people just don't care. They just don't care. And and in point of fact, not only do they not care, they don't care enough that they think it's a fair trade-off that people die so the economy 
stay stable. That's sickening. And the fact that anybody would publicly take a stance saying that the economy is more important than, say, your parents, you know, that, that that's reprehensible. That should have been career-ending. And 10 years ago, it would have been, you know. The, so that's how far we've fallen. So, you know, the whole situation is crap, and it's going to be crap for a while. And if we're lucky, things will start to look a little more normal by the end of June. But I wouldn't count on it. Yeah, yeah. This We're in it for the long haul, I think, on this. Mm-hmm. Especially, like, where I live, it has not hit yet. It hasn't hit the people yet. Mm-hmm. I, I live in Birmingham, Alabama. So uh-huh. it's one of those states where we are... The rate of... Like new infections, I think, are, are kind of mirroring that of New York City now. Mm-hmm. But people are acting like there's not really uh, an issue. Right. Well, because you're so far away. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, you're not even get, get, not connected. Well, you know, we don't have to. It's, it, we don't live in a world where people get on planes and travel or things. It's all right. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Nobody's getting off on this. That's the thing is that people think, you know, the only people who are going to be really untouched by it are the people who are so wealthy that they in their bunkers, it's going to it's going to touch every one of us. somebody who lost somebody. If if we don't end up losing people ourselves, this is going to hit the comics industry. You know, I mean, there's there's no doubt about it. And the comics industry as far as high risk industries go, is one of the lowest. Yeah. Most yeah. of us most of us do what I do, which is stay at home all day at work. But I know a lot of people in comics who are in, you know, high risk groups. And not simply because, you know, not and not because of age. So this is gonna Yeah, man. Yeah, man, this is the virus don't care. Yeah. <laughs> virus don't care at all. You know? So, so as as a comics professional, as somebody who is you know very much a a part of the comics industry, what are ways that you think that we can kind of help to mitigate the disaster and and help to uh, lessen the the effects of of what this virus is doing to people? I mean, I think this doing to the industry. I, I think the single most important thing that anybody can do is. Is support your LCS. Is support your stores. You know, if if there is a store that you've been getting comics from, they need to know that you are still getting comics from them, right? That their stock is not going to go fallow. You need to be pre-ordering books, and you need to be ordering books, and you know, even if it means that you've got to wait to get them. The, the the retailers are, you know, the retailers are the only outlet of the direct market. And if the direct market collapses, because Diamond doesn't care. You know, yeah. Diamond, yeah. Diamond has made it abundantly clear they don't care. You know, but the, this is how the retailers, you know, they, 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 they live on thin margins anyway. And... You know, now they're they're looking at not being able to sell their primary product for God knows how long. 
it's going to back up on the whole industry, right? I mean, you know, if Diamond isn't accepting books, then why should printers print the books, right? And if printers aren't printing the books, then why should the publisher make the books? So there, and and if the publisher isn't making the books, then you know your favorite artist isn't getting paid for drawing. You know, the whole machine can grind to a stop here. So the only thing that's going to, or one of the things that's going to keep us, you know, on life support through this is is making sure that those comic book stores know that 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 we they have and that we're supporting them and that means you know that means for in the name of god if 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 you had a a pull box and haven't cleared it now is the time to settle up on that even if you can't oh, yeah. buy and have them deliver the books to you or whatnot you know what i mean but you know use if 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 your store is offering to mail stuff if your store is making a list you know those books are going to be there Right. Lois Lane, you know, there was an issue of Lois that was supposed to come out yesterday. I know it exists because I got my comps. You know, <laughs> I mean, the book is real. It's there. So, you know, if you've been trying to pick up Lois and Floppy when it comes out, well, that means that the, that book, that book is there waiting for the opportunity. So, you know, prepaying on something like that, if, you're, if your retailer is willing to do that is is a huge thing, you know, at least I would think, because they have already, they've already paid for that book, you know, but now they can't sell it. Yeah. And, and, and at least with DC, you know, on floppies, they're not taking returns. So, you know, this isn't a thing that's going to be solved by the comics community alone. You know, the publishers are going to have to do right. And honestly, you know, Diamond's going to have to do right, which seems incredibly unlikely. But the, 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 the end result of this may be that we see, you know, we see a change in the distribution model. But, but yeah, but speaking, just speaking in terms of comics, you know, this is, this is going to hit the brick and mortar really hard. And the thing that we can do and it sounds kind of self-evident, but the thing that's going to keep them alive is money, you know? Yeah. And, 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 and trying to buy from them, you know, pre-ordering or, you know, making the purchase and letting them ship it to you or doing curbside or simply saying, hey, add they pulled this for me. You know, it's going to be six weeks before I get in. But I'll, I'll pick them up then. Yeah, that's that's gonna that's gonna be a huge difference, I think. The the two locals that that I would visit one shut down last May, I think. Yeah. And I was talking to the owner of that, and he said that he shut down in anticipation of having to sign another five year lease. Uh-huh. If he would have signed that five year lease at his location, he would have. He he would have been swamped. He would have been so screwed right now. Yeah. The other shop that I go to is it's in Birmingham, Alabama. It's a combination uh, tattoo parlor and uh, comic shop. And you know, right now, all that stuff shut down. Yeah, their flash, so, their flash wall must be amazing. Oh yeah, dude, <laughs> it's such a rad place. <laughs> it, it's 
at Sanctum Comics in Birmingham, Alabama. If you ever buy, you know, some miracle of something or, you know, things are just on the last rope for you and you end up in Birmingham, Alabama, mm -hmm. uh, Sanctum. Yeah. Good place. Yeah. Very good cool. Place. It sounds neat. Oh, yeah. But so, yeah, you, you're in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, I'm in, I'm in Portland, Oregon. I'm, I'm yeah. You know, I'm I'm a very energetic bricks throw from from Bendis and, and Fraction and those guys. So I, I was about Kelly to say, like, and, yeah, <laughs> you could throw a rock up there and hit a Six or seven comic professional. <laughs> yeah, no, really, really hard not to not to do serious damage to the comics industry. You know, I mean. <laughs> you drop a bomb on, bomb on Portland, you're going to change the face of the industry. Well, why do you think that is? How, how did Portland and you know the Pacific Northwest, by extension, become kind of the the capital of the comics brain trust? I think it was it was sort of a perfect storm. You know, Dark Horse was here. Oni started here, and Oni, you know, Oni's origins are in people who were at dark horse you have uh fanographics in seattle you know we've there, there have always been several small publishers here and then you know i moved up here in 98 cost of living was very cheap you could you know you could buy a house you could live here you could have a family here and most people in comics meeting 99% of us are not wealthy, despite what people may think, you know, we're not rolling in it. And the opportunity to, you know, be somewhere where you can, it's a city, it's a, you know, vibrant cultural scene, but, you know, you could live here and you could raise a family here. And then on top of that, it became, well, you know, then, then it started doing, it started accreting, you know, like the way that the way planets form, you know, enough comics, people were already here. More people came and more people came because those people came, you know, Bendis is single-handedly responsible for at least 10 people moving to Portland. <laughs> and then one of the things that happens as in every industry is okay. So now you're in this environment and you have all these comics people around and they effectively breed more comics people, right? So if you are an artist who has been interested in comics, but you're not drawing comics, and then you get a chance to say, talk to Lieber at length and strike up a friendship with him so he is able to guide you in your education comic artist, well, the natural extension of that is that maybe Lieber is the guy who, by way of example, right? But maybe he's, you know, maybe he's the guy who's talking to an editor one day and says, you should take a look at this person. And, you know, and then the community grows in different ways. So, you know, I mean, Portland's gotten very, well, when we moved here, the idea that there would be a TV show about Portland was absurd. And then Portlandia happened, and and more and more people have been moving here, and the cost of living is now nothing like it was. Uh, we would not be able to afford the house we live in if we were moving here today. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah I, bet. Uh, uh, I mean, not by a long shot. But 
the community for the time being is sustaining. I suspect that'll change if, if the economics of the region don't change. But that sort of brings us back to our lovely pandemic because God knows what the economy is going to look like in a year. So, oh, um, yeah, I, I work um, in a medical adjacent industry, so I'm like I have to go to work. Yeah. Luckily, that means that my job is secure. So yeah. it's and my, my wife is a teacher, so she has been enjoying her time at home with the kids for the past two weeks. Uh-huh. And but yeah, it's. Is she having to do online teaching? I don't know. She's starting that uh, next week. Uh, so yeah, they, they're uh, as with everything in Alabama, they're they're a little bit behind the ball on actually getting it implemented. They're they're slow to getting it ready, but that's more also- I suspect that's going to be a lot rougher actually than than I know a lot of people are thinking. Oh, you know, teaching from home or staying from home. That's like that's going to be grueling. You guys have two kids, did you say? Oh, yeah. 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 So you got two kids, and you got to work, and she's got to work. And, yeah, it's this is it ain't going to be easy. Nothing no, easy no. about what, what we're looking at. It's going to be exhausting. So so you, you're a family man. You're I, a writer. Yeah. Your, your wife is also a writer. Yeah. Yeah. Jen, so, Jen is a writer, yes. How and uh, I loved her Black Cat series. I read oh, that; it was, cool. it was fantastic. The how do you compartmentalize like your creative time versus being a dad, being present for your family? You know, being because that that's a huge you wow. you you got to be there as a, as a parent. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm lucky now because you know my son's 20 and he's home from college. My daughter's 16. She's past the line of self-sufficiency. My my family time now is different than what it needed to be five years ago. And honestly, I think I probably was never very good at it because I tend to carry what I'm working on around with me at any given moment. Not necessarily, you know, you know, with, with a pad and a pen, but... Especially if you know when I was working on novels, yeah, you don't. When you're a crime writer. You're you're carrying some heavy stuff around with you. Well, and 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 in particular, novels in um, comics for me write very discreetly, right? Because they're writing in, they're writing that the medium themselves is, is one of discrete units, right? There is the book, and then the book breaks down into the page, and the page even breaks down into the panel. Right. So that as one's working on it, one can, for my purposes, at least, I can hit the end of a page, the end of a sequence and be done for the time being. So whatever's going on in the back of my head about, all right, you got to solve this problem. What's going to happen next? And how are they going to get out of this, et cetera, et cetera. That's all well and good. But it isn't it. it, I don't have to drag it around with me quite so much. And the thing with a novel for me was that, man, until it was done, it was always in your head. Because even if a chapter is a discrete unit of a novel, it is not the terminus of the novel. The last chapter, the last page is the terminus of the novel. So I would find myself over and over again 
having conversations in particular with my wife, where in the middle of the conversation, I would blurt out something that I had realized about whatever I was writing at that moment. And, you know, she would look at me and be like, did you hear a thing I said? And I would be able to say, yeah, I absolutely heard you. But I think, honestly, the biggest crime that I committed as a parent was there were a couple years when I was still at D.C. before I left in 2009 where I was just miserable. I was so unhappy. The relationship with D.C. was very, very bad. And I was incredibly depressed. And and the result of that was that I withdrew further and further. And then when I finally left D.C. in 2009, I was in pretty bad shape. And I was in such bad shape that if I had been smart, I would have gone and gotten some help and been diagnosed as probably clinically depressed. But I spent about a year and a half, two years, really unable to work. Oh. And... And I was not, I was not a good dad during that period. I mean, there was just, you know, because you can't be a good parent when you're miserable with yourself. You know, if, if you're unhappy with yourself, it's very hard to have patience for your children. It, yes. It is very hard to, to be listening with a full head and a full heart. You know, I was fortunate in that at least my son was of an age where, my absence arguably did less damage, but I will never be able to make up to my daughter the fact that I was not there for, you know, a couple of years. I was, I was, I was present in body only. And so it's not, you know, I mean, some people do it quite well. I don't. And unfortunately, you know, just as my children are getting grown, I figured it out. But now it's a little too late. So, you know. Yeah, it's there was a heavier answer there than I think you were expecting, but there you go. Hey, it, I mean, I, I like honesty and I respect it. I respect <laughs> honesty a lot. So, yeah, what what do you think turned you around? You said you were you were kind of in, in the dumps for about two years. What? Yeah, it was what a, got you a out? Bad place. What did get me out? I think you know it's funny. I found an. A little voice memo I had made to myself back in like 2013, 2014, that was me having sort of realized what I had squandered, like, and, and needing to get off my ass and get back in gear. I think part of what it was, was I just needed time. I think, I mean, I've read about, you know, other other people in creative fields going through similar things where you hit a wall and just the thought of doing the work is painful. And, you know, when I, when I walked away from DC and, 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 and it wasn't just DC, this is not to absolve DC. I was very unhappy with them. They treated me very badly. I had reasons to be unhappy with them, but I also was let down by other professional colleagues. There had been, you know, projects that, you know, had been agreed upon that were going to happen. And then people walked away from them. So I found myself in a place in 2009 and especially 2010, I couldn't go into a comic book store. I'd get a panic attack. I just, I was that miserable. Oh, and yeah, no, it was, it was really ugly. I think, you know, a couple things helped to turn it around. You know, I talked to, I, f I found some people to talk to and I, also kind of 
uh, comics is interesting. When you are not coming, when, when you don't have a comic coming out, you cease to exist. And this is why you will see some creators get so shrill about, you know, defending their work or whatnot if it goes out there and somebody has the temerity to say they didn't like it because their whole identity is in that publication, right? Yeah. And if there's a month when you're not on the stand as a writer or as an artist, for that month, you don't exist. And if that happens six months in a row, you vanish, right? You become you become a back issue bin, right? And I think, you know, I think getting to a place where there were things that I wanted to write again, Lazarus was a huge help in that. I think being able to come out with a book that I was very proud of being able to work with Michael Lark, because Michael is a good friend on top of being phenomenally talented. I mean, on top of all the other things that I can say about Michael, Working with Eric Troutman on the same, right? It was, those were really, really good things for me. I think there was also getting, you know, sort of changing my my relationship with social media, because that's the other thing that's happening, right? Is that you look. (laughs) I was going to ask about that. Yeah. You see all the things that are happening and you don't have anything to do with them, you know? (laughs) I mean, I hate social media. I think social media is bad and vile and wrong and responsible for. 90% 90% of the problems we face in the world today can directly be traced to Facebook. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, 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 and I don't say that with tongue-in-cheek. I absolutely believe social media does not do... Uh, it, the, the, the small amount of good that social media can do is not offset by the incredible harm and damage it does. And, and it's a pity because I would love to have that kind of accessibility, right? I would love to be able to talk to, you know, fans, people who are reading the work, people who have questions. But you can't because every time you go on Twitter or you step onto Facebook, you are falling into a very carefully constructed maze that is designed to make you anxious and angry and scared and to raise your blood pressure and to seek validation in quarters where you should not really seek it from people that you really shouldn't be seeking it from. It is, it is a trap and it is a very dangerous trap. You know, we, we, we've got a discord server for Lazarus and you know we'll talk about other comics there you know there are forums for other comics and all the other books and television and news and so on but the thing that's happening there is it's much like an old you know bulletin board right it's 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 like going to the old comics forums because there is moderation there is a standard of behavior that is expected of people right not, you know, and everybody's entitled to their opinion, but nobody gets to start calling each other names that they disagree. And that's what we've lost, you know, and then you take that away, you take away 
you know, with the, the, the sense of civility and decency and respect for your fellow human being that we now live in with Facebook and Twitter and so on. And then you add to that the absolute abdication on the uh, on the part of the people who created those platforms and who own those platforms. And that's a key word. They own yes. the platforms to police them. And this bullshit argument of, well, it's about freedom. No, it's not. There is no expectation of freedom of speech. I cannot go to DC Comics and write them a comic book that in, wh in which Batman digs up the, gra the graves of his parents and has sex with his mother's corpse, all right, a and expect them to write it. I could absolutely write that script, but if DC would have every right to look me dead in the eye and say, uh, Greg? We're not publishing a story where Batman's a necrophiliac. Not even I'm, on Black Label? Not even on Black Label, right? <laughs> and and even, but but the point is, if they say no, I don't get to say, well, you're, you're, you're infringing my right to free speech. No, they're not. Yeah, it's their fucking it's, property. <laughs> exactly. It's their character. It's their money. I mean, now think about that. That gets even better. Pay me? to do this thing and then I get upset that you won't pay me to do it? I mean, really? And it's the same thing, right? But people think that Twitter and Facebook are different because they don't charge us for it. Well, of course they don't charge us for it. We're the product. You're the product, yeah, yeah. exactly. So uh, in point of fact, we're the most important things on those platforms. And yet they give us nothing in return. Google, they've just been outside of this conversation, you know, I mean, it's, it's, I, I, the only social media I am on is Instagram. And I checked it twice today. And each time the ads that were targeted at me were ads about ultraviolet oh, sterilizing equipment, super easy to get and use face masks, you're detecting a trend. Oh, yeah. And, and concealed carry clothing and equipment and so on. So based on the ads that Facebook, because it is Facebook, is pushing at me through Instagram, the world is ending. Right. Just based on those ads, this is Armageddon. I need to arm up, gas mask up and hunker down. And it's like, Jesus, guys. Yep. That's that's yep. the problem. <laughs> So it's it's funny you you mentioned the the complicity that Facebook and and Twitter and all these other companies have for just the lack of civility and not policing that. I, I was listening to um, I'm a fan of a history podcast by a guy named Dan Carlin, and he was talking about how it the the lack of civility now. Mm -hmm. And on social media, it on the outset, it doesn't look like a, a big deal. It's like, who cares if you call somebody a dickhead? It's not a, it's over their political beliefs. It's not that big of a deal, but it's a death by a thousand cuts. Mm -hmm. It's the more it happens, the more people become divided, the less people care about even trying to reach across the aisle or, or listen to anyone who might have a differing opinion. Mm -hmm. And yeah. And, and we didn't I, get here quickly. 
you know, exactly. We, we, the, but this is, the, and it's interesting, right? Because the most bipo- bipartisan thing that has ever happened in the last this month. Yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. We got a, got a bill through that nobody's happy with, and yeah. you know what? That's called politics. It used to be, right? No, nobody got what they wanted. Everybody got what they could live with, and. In particular, and this started, in my opinion, with the Clinton administration, with his election, but it really got out of control with Obama. There was a salt the earth policy. It wasn't we will we will we will try to find the compromise that makes it work. It was it's either my way or it's no way at all. Yep. Right. We salt the earth. And that's not what politics is. And it's absolutely not what politics is in what's supposed to be a republic and what's supposed to be a representative democracy. But we do not agree to disagree anymore. I'm right. You're wrong. End of it. And the problem is, in my opinion, this is this is the infection. We have now reached a point where there are things I cannot agree to disagree with. That I cannot say it's okay that you believe that. I, I don't. I cannot accept, for instance, believing that Jews and blacks should die is a political stance that has any merit. And I cannot agree to disagree with somebody who advocates that position. And it would be morally bankrupt of me if I did. They're wrong. Period. no argument to be had there right yet we're now living in a time that says okay i'm the problem because i'm not willing to engage in that debate there is no fucking debate yeah yeah some stuff you just shouldn't yeah this isn't even grace with your time in a debate We're we're not trying to decide if you like pepperoni or sausage on the pizza we're talking about somebody's right to exist that is not an argument and the fact that we are now at a place argue that it is, that that is something that should be a debate, that that is something that these there's decent people on both sides, both fucking shit. Yeah, yeah, it's it's shocking, and I I don't even think like twenty years ago we could have imagined no. how bad it got. Yeah, and- exactly. Yeah, and look, I have theories about the how and the why of it, but it is what it is. So, you you started in, in crime fiction. I did. And your your background before you actually got you you had a lot of different jobs. I was looking at <laughs> uh, at, at your resume, bef- like prior to. Do you think that kind of informed where you were coming from as a writer? Well, I think that uh, I think that all the experiences influence it. I think the most I think one of the most effective experiences for me was was training as a as an EMT because it changed very much how I wrote about violence and 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 the results of violence 
And that certainly informed the work. You know, I, I, I sold my first novel relatively young and, and had it published relatively young. And if you read it now, it reads like somebody who got published relatively young. It, it is, it is lacking a certain sophistication, even if the prose works. It's, it's, I mean, I knew, I think on some level, I knew I was going to be a writer fairly young. And I distracted myself with other things, but I was always writing. So that once, you know, when, when, when I finally did sell the novel and, and was suddenly in a place where I could do something that very few writers can do, which is write professionally, right? Where, where I didn't have a day job and then I was writing at night. It was my job was to write a book. I, I'm not sure. It's funny. I haven't, you know, with I, I turned 50 this year, so there there is some retrospective going on here. I don't think I, I don't think I was ready for it. Really? Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't think that first. I don't think Keeper is a bad novel. It was my first novel, and I, I don't think it's a bad one. But I compare it to, say, uh, Walking Dead, which was the last Kodiak novel, and that came out 10 years ago, or Bravo, which was the last original novel I did, which is, what, five years, six years now? And both of those are just, uh, as literary pieces, much more accomplished, in my opinion. But having said that, you know, it, it, it's a journey. You, I don't get to those books without writing the books that come before and and I mean that not simply in terms of series, but in terms of process, right? You've got to you've got to learn. Yeah, and, it's pump and wait. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. And and the goal in any artistic endeavor, right, is that the thing you do tomorrow be better than the thing you did today. You may not succeed, but that's the goal. So, you know, I I I, I don't I don't know. You know, I haven't written straight prose in quite a long time. My last novel was really brutal. And since that time, I've done, you know, I've done these Star Wars books, but they're a very different kind of writing. But I haven't tried to go in and say, I'm going to try to craft a narrative entirely my own in 80 to 120,000 words. Nobody bother me. I'll be gone for a month. And that might be that it might be in what I just said people for that self-preservation a little bit yeah i think so actually casey i think i think that's exactly what it is because i find novels incredibly difficult and the older i get the harder i find them they 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 require me to go away from the people around me until they are done and and i suspect that's not healthy um, <laughs> and I know that sounds like, duh, but, <laughs> but that's, but, but that is something of a realization for me to say it because I know there are plenty of writers out there who seem perfectly capable to write for four hours a day and then wander off and do whatever else. And I couldn't, I could write for four hours a day and then wander off and do whatever else, but whatever else I was doing, I was still living inside this book. And it wasn't romantic and it wasn't fun. 
it was ultimately really isolating. And see, that's one of the things I love about comics, right? When you write a novel, you you are absolutely alone, right? It's you and the metaphorical blank page or, you know, glowing monitor or whatnot. And that's it. That and the cast of however many who are bumping around in your head saying, no, I would never do that, you know, or or whispering in your ear, you know, and, and then all the doubts. In it. But you are alone. You do it by yourself. Now, I can't draw, see? So if I'm going to make a comic, I have to collaborate, right? I have to be working with other people. And even not a colorist and if I was a colorist I'm not a letterer and even if I was a letterer I sure as hell am not a designer right so if I want to make a comic I am by definition engaging in a collaboration and I love that I think my work is always superior if I am able to collaborate with others because that allows me you know one you always have people to check you on bullshit <laughs> no, that's really important look the, the death of any artist is when they start believing their own press right when they when they sit there and they go oh i already know everything i need to know there's nothing they can tell me i have nothing more to learn right the second any artist any doesn't matter with the media the second they believe that it is the same thing as saying and also my shit doesn't smell right i mean they they, they are they're done and you can see it there are artists that you can look at their careers and you can see the moment when they decided they knew everything they needed to know. And that was it. And, <laughs> and it was all downhill from there. My theory is, you know, my, my theory as to why Hemingway killed himself is that, you know, when he started, it took him eight months to write a short story. And when he, you know, before he died, he could write a short in an afternoon. And okay, well, that's it. You know, where do I go from here? There's nothing left. Yeah. Add, add to that, and not to make light of, of suicide, but I, I do think that that was a contributing factor. You know, but for instance, I'm, you know, I do Black Magic with Nicholas Scott. I do The Old Guard, you know, with Leandro. I, I do Lazarus, Lazarus with Michael Lark. These are all collaborations. I'm not just writing a script, sending it to them, and disappearing until the pages appear. We are in contact with each other. We communicate. You know, Michael and I exchanged, I think, six emails today. Oh, wow. And of those six, three were about, and they, and honestly, really minor. Like, I will, here, I will, I will read it to you. <laughs> I will open this up. No, and, but this is what I mean. And this is so minor, but this is, but this is, this is the respect we have for each other. So he says, Hey man, this is a tiny thing, but I thought I should bring it to you for a reason, which I'll make clear in a moment. On page 15, I think I'm going to have to shift around a couple of balloons from one panel to another. Specifically, I want to move line six from panel two to panel three, and then move line 10 from panel three to panel four. I wanted to make sure to clear it with you, though, since you have ellipses linking 10 to 11, and since they aren't going to be in different panels anymore, I thought maybe you'd prefer to keep them as one balloon or break them up differently. That is so minor. Like, my response to that is, yeah, there's no reason to separate them. Just put them in one balloon. Right? That's it. 
but the communication there that's how that's how we work right and that's not him asking permission at all that's michael going i want you to be aware of this right yeah in the same way that i will reach out to him and i will say i got a sequence here i have no idea how to do it <laughs> i know what needs to happen i'm not sure how to write it what do you need from me in the script right and michael requires a different script than nicola does because they work in very different ways like nicola wants a script she wants the script in Microsoft Word. She wants it in my formatting style. And I have a very specific formatting style that I use when I'm writing a comic script, right? And she wants, and I mean, she wants that thing locked down so that she can print it out and she has it and she is working from the text. And I send Michael a script. He wants it in basically the most basic text format possible. And what he then wants to do is be able to reduce every page description to a single printed page that he can print and then put thumbnails on the backside of, right? That's the way he works. And I have no idea what Leo wants from my scripts at all. Like, I don't know if he's working from them literally on a monitor, if he prints them out or whatnot. I know I send him a script. I know a couple of days later I get six pages of thumbnails. I send him any notes on that, and a couple of days later, they're penciled, and any corrections I think need to be made, I'll say, maybe look at this, but 99% of the time, I'm like, no, perfect, I think it looks amazing, how do you do that, and he goes off, and three days later, everything's inked, right, and that's working with Leandro Fernandez, it's just like, you want a book, watch this. <laughs> it's like magic. It really is, it's like, hold my beer. <laughs> But see, I think what they do, I think what artists do, pencilers, I should specify, do, is magic. I think it's an extraordinary skill. Because to be able to do this well in comics is not the same skill as being able to beautifully illustrate a children's book. Right? The, the art of telling a story visually, there's a reason why... I work with artists who allow me to do whole pages where there's no dialogue, right? I do whole pages that, you know, nobody says anything. You're just looking at the action. And I am fortunate, especially now, having done this for as long as I have, that in the main, I am working with incredible visual storytellers. Michael Lark can tell a story. He can move the action from one panel to another, to another, to another, and he doesn't need my words getting in the way of that. Mike Perkins, same thing, right? Rick Burchett, you know, I was very fortunate to work with early in my career, and I learned so much from him. And I'm actually hoping that he and I will be working on something again very soon. So Nice. Yeah. So, how do you go about finding your art teams? For Do you... so? For instance, for your your book, let's just, just yeah. throw it out. The yeah, yeah. I'm sorry for for whiteout. How how did you pick that? And, oh, and then okay. going wow. from that to like Lazarus. All right. Well, okay. So when when you talk about whiteout, the thing you have to remember is that's the first comic I ever did. So oh, yeah. the way the way Lieber and I got put together was I had connected with Oni. 
Oni wanted to do Whiteout. They had a script from me. We had discussed the mini. We knew what it was going to be. I came to a comic show in Portland, came up from Eugene, where I was living at the time, was introduced to Steve Lieber there, and it was really Bob Shrek and Oni and Jamie Rich and Joe Nosemack who put us together, right? So that was an example of that, that marriage was arranged by the publisher. When I was working at DC and say Marvel, you know, especially in, in like the first 10 years of my career, more often than not, I was being paired with artists entirely based on editorial. So that I would be told, you are writing this, this person is going to draw it. And sometimes you, you know, strike gold and sometimes you wouldn't. When I, when we talk about now, you know, what I'm doing today, right? The things that I do these days, almost universally, simply because at DC, because I've been around for so freaking long. You've got clout, man. <laughs> yeah, that, that there is a certain element of people will come to me and they will say, would you like to work with this person? As opposed to say, you are working with this person. And then when, you know, I'm doing stuff at, say, Oni or Image, Image is absolutely, and Oni is absolutely capable. I could go to them, I could say, I've got an idea, I don't have an artist. And they could say, you know who would be great, and give me suggestions and try to introduce us, right? But just as easily, and, and, and in fact, what has happened almost universally, in particular at Image, is that I can go to Image and I can say, Michael Lark and I have a book we want to do. And it's called Lazarus, and this is the pitch. And would you guys be interested? And the response, I am lucky to say, has been yes. Uh, <laughs> and that has been the response for the old guard, and that was the response for Black Magic. And and I hope it will continue to be the response moving forward, provided that you know the industry recovers from where we are. So. It, it 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 is a it's a very different thing now than it used to be, and then the other thing it, which you know I tell people and they're stunned by this, you know when I when I started in comics in in ninety eight ninety nine at DC in particular, editorial didn't want you talking to the artists. Editorial wanted to be that that communication channel, right? You were over here doing the scripts. The artist was over there drawing it, and you never got to talk to them. What would they gain from that? I think some control, but I also think one of the things they were doing was they were trying to protect the system. Because understand, you know, I'm talking 25 years ago almost. This is before people were sending their pages in digitally. This is before everybody was contacting each other via email. Email was still... Fairly, I mean, it wasn't brand new, but it was, I would send scripts physically in. Yeah. You know what I mean? And artists would send their pages in. They wouldn't scan them. They would have to pack them up, put them in FedEx, send them to their editor, right, on the company's account. That's how you did it. And... One of the things I think that they were afraid of, because there was some history of this, is that when a writer and an artist didn't get on, 
uh, they would start screwing with each other and that would break the whole chain down. And when you're talking about publishers like DC and Marvel, the train has to run, right? You, the book cannot not come out. It has to come out. And if your writer and your artist are pissing each other off and the result of that is that the writer is not turning in the scripts or the artist is not turning in pages and it's threatening the schedule on the book, you've got a real problem. So I suspect that's what it arose out of. I can't guarantee it, but I suspect that's what it came out of. Obviously, it is not as big a problem as as they might have feared. And it does happen today. I guarantee you it still happens today. You will get, you know, art teams that aren't getting on and they will treat each other badly. But it sort of goes to that lack of civility issue. Yeah, uh, yeah. There are there are a couple of creators in the industry who have made a name for themselves by being horrible to their collaborators. And and the worst thing about it is that the publishers have allowed it. And in allowing it, that has emboldened these people. So now they're horrible to the editors. They're just creating their own monsters to deal yeah, with. That's exactly it. So these companies have created the own their their own problems. And and like all things that we deal all, all all major ales in the world today, it comes back to money and they decide that, you know, well, it's worth the abuse because the book sells. It's like, let me tell you something. Some of these characters, you can write crap and sell. And I think we've both seen people write crap and it sell. So, you know, the, the, there comes a point where you've got to take a stand. Because if you don't, what you're doing is you're telling other people that it's okay to behave that way. Yeah. You're, you're saying that that lack of respect, perfectly fine. Carry on. And we're back. We're back from that and cutting it in half. <laughs> you always have a cartoon voice when we come back. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know. I can't understand why. I don't I know if it's that, you. But. Like, yeah. And then, yeah, we both do it at times, and it's kind of funny. <laughs> it is kind of funny. It is kind of funny. But, anyways, Greg Rucka. For and this, is, this is only the first half because Casey and Greg talked for over two hours. Yeah, it's a long interview. Yeah, but so they had a lot of fun. So it's they cool, had a lot of so. fun. Yeah. What'd you think of the first half? Well, that was great. I mean. Yeah. You know what, what can you what can you say? I mean, Greg and and Casey got along really well, and I you know I really can't wait to hear the second, and I'm gonna wait so I have them both back to back so I can listen to them all at once. Yeah, uh, in the car because I listen to all of our episodes as they come out, do you? And hopes to get better in what we're doing. Right, right. I I should do that more often because mostly I don't, I only listen to them when I edit them. I don't listen to them after the edit, so I should probably. I know it's funny because I, I feel bad because when we first started, like the first 200 episodes. We were both editing back and forth quite a bit. Yeah. And then really the last 200 episodes, because we're yeah. at around that. We have, we have that you many. Know, <laughs> yeah. You've been doing the bulk of it with me yeah. spattering doing it here and there, which I feel bad. <laughs> but it's like I come in, you're like, oh, this is done. I'm like, oh, shit. Okay. <laughs> but at the same time, I listen to everything more. And then I, you know, we, we pull out things and I, you know, we, I don't know. We all have our, our roles to play, and it's just interesting that uh, 
when I'm listening to back and forth on things we go through. I don't know why we're talking about this right now. Because it came up. I don't know. Go ahead and finish your thought. We'll move on. <laughs> My thought process is this. I listen to every single episode, so I'm excited to, to listen to this one and then listen to the second one back to back, even yeah. though what we just heard was me listening during the editing process, not really sitting down and listening to every single thing that was said. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. Yeah. 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 So I'm excited I, for the next one as well. Yeah. Which will be dropping this afternoon because we're doing, we're dropping both of them today. We only split it up and I only, just everybody's curious. I know some people have asked before, why do we split them up at the hour mark or so? It's literally just because we want to make sure what the guest, what the guest has to say and what we have to say gets the right, the proper, you know, airtime out there. Right. So if it's that Johnny long, doesn't like long form. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> that Johnny doesn't like long form. <laughs> no, I don't. I, but I, I, I mean, I do and I don't. But I figure if you put it into an hour chunk, then yeah, then what they say won't get lost in how long it is, and they, it'll because there's always good stuff, and especially with kind of feel like it's a little easier to consume. Easier to consume, yeah. The next, the next episode, part two, has got a bunch of really good stuff by the stuff with DC on it. So again, it, it, it makes sense to split it. And this one was curious because I saw the time length on it. I actually took out a calculator and divided the the, the minutes in half. Yeah, and there's actually a, a perfect split of the exact half minute. So that's funny. It was kind of funny, but that is funny. that's that's all I got. Well, there you guys go. Yeah, if you, you go. enjoyed that, please go over to spoilerverse.com. Check out all that we have to offer. Uh, there's a plethora of podcasts that have tons of great content and a lot of great articles being done as well. Yeah, and you can click on the store link up there and buy some t-shirts, buy some hoodies. Uh, whatever you want and it'll be awesome because it'll help us out and we'll make some money and pay the bills but so do that there you guys go well that's a show Johnny that's a show alright don't forget Notions of Podcast we are Cthulhu and as Cthulhu compels you to do open the mind <laughs> and read more why is that a laugh? I don't know because <laughs> it took you so long to get this headspace to be so comfortable doing that yeah. and uh, it's a big problem.